Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 253. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And man, I'm excited about this one. This is someone I have never met, someone I did not know, someone that I just cold pitched because I love his work so much. And I go, you know, I'm sitting around here in quarantine. Let's talk about more things that I love. Let's bring some joy into the world. And so this week's show, I've got Tom Bryan. Tom Bryan is an editor at Stereo Gum, and his big project there is called The Number Ones, where basically he writes an essay about every single song that has ever been number one on the Billboard 100 for any length of time. He started in 1958. He's up to 1982. But that's not how I know him. That's something I discovered later. The way I know Tom Bryan is through his work at the AV Club. Now, he's had three amazing columns there. The first one I remember is called A History of Violence, where he picks a year and he picks the action movie that is most emblematic of that year. Two of my favorites, of course, The Warriors and Total Recall. The Warriors, 1979, Total Recall, 1990. Once he wrapped that up, I was really, really sad because I go, well, now I'm not going to get his columns anymore. Thankfully, right behind that was Age of Heroes, where he talked about the most emblematic comic book movie of the year. And went through all the years since, good lord, I think he started in 1980 on that one. And as I'm whipping through those, I go, well, okay, what's coming behind that now? Because I love the way this guy writes. His interests seem to line up with mine. And as I tell him in the episode, he writes the way I wish I wrote. And so his current project is called The Popcorn Champs. And that's a long essay about the number one movie of each year starting in 1960. Coming up two days from when this is released is his essay about three men and a baby, which it's hard to believe that that was the number one movie of 1987. I mean, how strange is that? 1986 was Top Gun. He's talked about Indiana Jones and Star Wars and West Side Story. You've got all these sort of epic movies and ones that are iconic, ones you think of when you think of hit blockbuster movies. 1987, three men and a baby. I cannot wait to see how he writes about this. Now, I suspect you wouldn't be here if you didn't know a little bit something about me, about my subject, and what some of my favorite things are. But I give you fair warning. You've got two legitimate pop culture nerds ready to tee off here. And as I was editing this episode and putting it together, it struck me just how many references to pop culture texts are in here. So I started writing them down. I did not catch them all. But as I'm sitting here, I've written down 39 different things, ranging from the aforementioned Total Recall to the 1978 movie The Cat from Outer Space, to Irv Gotti of Murder, Inc., to I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas, to baseball writer Jeff Passan, to The Sandman Who Wrestled in ECW, the movie The Monster Squad, the show MASH, the song My Sharona. There's a lot going on here, and we're kind of pinballing all over the place, which is really, really fun. If you love pop culture, and especially if you love writing about pop culture, this is going to be your episode. There's also a bit in here about how he came to get this dream job, how he fights burnout, how to deal with PR people, and if you are a PR person, how to pitch someone who gets a zillion pitches a day. I obviously got through to him. I got him on my show. I must be doing something right. We talk about how that's done. It's a fantastic episode, and Tom Bryan is just as I'd hoped he'd be. 
It's no surprise that we're approximately the same age because we have similar tastes, and I relate to his writings on such a deep level. But no matter who you are, if you love pop culture, I think you are going to love this one. So we'll get to that in a second. First, we got to pay some love to our sponsor. That's Four Degrees, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Basically, anything you're doing online, you could probably be doing it better. If you're trying to reach an audience, if you're trying to reach customers, if you're trying to reach constituents, Four Degrees knows how to build a message that wins and knows how to deploy it on the channels where people are, where you can touch their hearts and minds. They are amazing at what they do, and I'm proud that they've been the sponsor since episode one. We're 253-plus episodes later. They are still with me. I adore them. They do fantastic work. So building a website, social media marketing, online advertising, anything you're doing online trying to reach people, and let's face it, you're probably doing that now it's quarantine it's time to get your online message right so hit up four degrees the number four d-e-g-r-e dot e-s if you're listening on itunes stitcher or any other podcatcher please subscribe rate and review those things are all the lifeblood of a podcast and it helps me reach more people as i put out quality content for you especially as we're all still sort of in lockdown so let's get to episode 253 it's tom Bryan, writer at stereo gum the ringer the AV Club, GQ. He's written all over the place. He's a fantastic guy. This is a wonderful chat, and it all starts right now. And, you know, Sandman had Enter Sandman. And yeah. now watch all ECW shows on the WWE Network. They just replaced it with some, like, generic rock music. Yeah. And it looks absurd like ridiculous i always wonder how wwe would lose licenses to their own music like <laughs> you know because sometimes like axe and smash won't come out to demolition and you go how did you lose this one like this was yours this was produced for you yeah i don't know I no idea so this is tom bryan who i discovered on the av club um writing i think the first one i fell in love with was a history of violence that, that was my first one. And then was Age of Heroes. You did a whole run of that. And now you're doing the Popcorn Champs. And I have read every single one of those. I look forward to them every other Friday. And it caused me to seek out all of your other stuff. So, you know, you've been on The Ringer. You're an editor at Stereo Gum. And the deeper I got into sort of your writing, the more I'm like, holy shit, you match up with my interests in almost every aspect of pop culture. And I go, this is my guy. So it's a thrill to get to talk to you. Right on. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) You bet. So first question, uh, I was wondering about that history of violence column because that feels like it's your brainchild and something that you pitch. That doesn't seem like it comes from an external source. Is that something you pitched to the AV club? And what was their reaction when you you pitched it? Yeah, well, I've never written for the AV club before. I believe... Stephen Hyden put me in touch with uh, with AA Dowd over there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you know, I've been writing. Um, when my friend Rob Harvilla was working for Deadspin, I had a column for him that was called the Netflix Action Movie Canon, where like I think it was once a week I wrote about a different action movie that happened to be on Netflix right then, and it was all you know it was unstable because their rotation was always moving in and out. And, but when, um, I, I think Deadspin got funding cut or something, I couldn't do it for Rob anymore. And I wanted to keep writing about it. And I, you know, it was like, how can I keep writing about action movies 
And I think um, Shea Serrano's rap yearbook had just come out. Have you ever read that? No, I haven't read that. I, I've wanted to. I got a stack of books that's like a mile high. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just well, during it's quarantine. Funny, it's, you know, Shea's idea, and maybe he got it from someplace else, I don't know, but he wrote about like the single most important rap song for every year, which I was mad at myself for not thinking of. So I pretty <laughs> much ripped it off for action movies. I wrote that until I ran out of years. You know, I, I love it when an idea comes up where you go, I'm angry that I didn't think of this first. Mm-hmm. I feel that way about the podcast, All Fantasy Everything. Okay. Where they just fantasy draft things from the real world. So, like, right. movies to watch while you're hungover. And so you're building your team, and you go, God damn it, that is such a perfect idea. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That is good. <laughs> and so, yeah, I they say good comics borrow, great comics outright steal. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny that, that comes from Shay, and it's funny to me too that you keep naming a lot of my other favorite writers. So like Shay Serrano and Rob Harvilla. I didn't know it was uh, you actually pronounce the L because there's two in a row. I thought it was like Harvilla. Uh, maybe because maybe I've been saying it wrong for a lot of years. That would be, so, that would be awesome. A.A. Uh, a. Dowd, how much are you in touch with like other kind of pop culture writers? How much do you guys communicate with each other? I mean, there's a, like Rob was my boss at the Village Voice uh, many, many years ago. Uh, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia now, and there's, you know, there's like a few writers who I know who live here. But most of my friends who are writers were my friends when I lived in New York uh, more than a decade ago now. And I've, I've, I don't even say stayed in like super good touch with them, but they're, you know, we'll email every once in a while. I, I, Rob is a great, great dude. I really miss, you know, seeing him every day. Yeah, for sure. Did you come out of more traditional reporting? Like, were you sort of like a covering cops and courts? Were you a journalist like that or anything? Or have you been covering uh, culture? I to, no, I am not. I didn't go to journalism school. I, um, when I first got hired to write full time, it was at The Voice. I got hired as a music blogger. And so I think I had, I, don't believe anybody has been like a professional music blogger for as long as I have anywhere. Cause that was in 2005. And I had a friend who was doing that over there. And he said, I, I was just moving to New York then from, from Baltimore where I'm from. And he, uh, he said he put in a word for me and got me hired as a, as a blogger there. So I wrote a music blog for the voice and barely wrote anything for their print edition, but I worked for The Voice for like uh, three years, three and a half years, something like that. And they, there was one time when they sent me, when I had just started, they sent me to cover a trial. It was when uh, Irv Gotti from Murder Inc. Records was on trial for money laundering. So right. I went to like every, I, I did not know what I was doing. I had to like ask other reporters what to do. And I was, profoundly bored the whole time even though i understand that was like a really like dramatic cinematic trial by the by the standards of that right but no i don't come out of any type of traditional journalism background at all i i just have been splattering out thoughts <laughs> online for like basically my entire adult life yeah what uh i mean is this what you had designs on doing like when you were in college or I mean, like, what what was your career path, and how did this ultimately find you? I know, I mean, you you found your way to the Voice, and that worked pretty well. And now it seems like you've got a pretty good slate of gigs for yourself. 
But, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I hope it stays that way. Um, I, I always wanted, I wanted specifically to be a music critic, which seemed like wanting to be an astronaut or something, or like <laughs> a baseball player. You know, you don't. That's not a, a thing that people necessarily do. That you can just decide you want to do that. There's not like a major that you can take in college. Right. But um, I, you know, I loved like Spin Magazine when I was in high school in the nineties. And, um, and it was just, that's what I always wanted to do. And I, I kind of put it together piece by piece. I was, when I was in college, I interned for the Baltimore city paper and I got to know, uh, the guy Lee Gardner, who they had a music editor then that was back when weekly papers would have a music editor, not just like right, yeah. arts person or whatever that and, like, weekly papers existed. <laughs> and he eventually became editor-in-chief over there. But I started pitching him, and he let me write a couple things. And then when he became arts editor, the guy who replaced him let me pitch a couple things. And then I started writing for Pitchfork in 2004, which is um, – that, that was, like, back when they weren't paying for reviews. Right. And they would, they would put out, like, open calls to have people, like, audition, basically – to like to write for them they would like there's this like whole elaborate questionnaire you had to like name your top i want to say it was your top 10 albums from every decade oh like, Jesus. really oh yeah it was like i it was like i was being vetted to be vice president and it was to write like singles reviews of like you know Franz <laughs> ferdinand songs or whatever <laughs> well i remember like espn did this weird show called dream job like and these guys would try to be sports center anchors and i remember like to be on that show they would have to pass like this sports aptitude test okay so like the producers would ask them you know name uh name 10 players from each team in the american league east right they would ask me that because i'm from denver right, right. and so <laughs> there was this one guy who's like i i memorized like every roster i could he asked me and i go and he's just staring at me and i go is that right he goes you know, I have no idea, but you seem like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's probably about what it was with them. Yeah. it's. Uh, I, I remember early on in this show, so like six years ago, I interviewed Jason Heller, who used to write for the AV Club. He had a book come out called Strange Stars, uh, largely about like David Bowie and science fiction and things like that. And he said one of the biggest things that people don't always pay heed to when they want to become a music critic is, yes, you have to listen to a ton of music, right? That's a prerequisite. That's obvious. But you also should read a ton of music criticism. Yes. To know like how other people are writing about this and how they talk. You should be reading, you know, Lester Bangs. You should be reading Grail Marcus. You should be reading, you know, folks like that. Who are some of the music critics that you liked uh, before you got into this? And who do you read now? Oh man. Now, I mean, it's like, you're kind of, it, now it's like a community and you want to like, and it's also a competitive thing. So if I come out, like there's, there's a guy who writes for Pitchfork named Paul Thompson, who mostly writes rap reviews for them. Mm -hmm. And we end up writing about a lot of the same things and he whoops my ass every time. It's so irritating. Like when I come out with a review on the same day as he does and mine isn't better than his, <laughs> I definitely, I, I've never talked to Paul about that. I, I don't know if that's weird, but or I'm guessing he does not feel the same way. He doesn't write like somebody who's concerned about other people's stuff. Um, but when he beats me at something, I don't like it. 
when I was young, when I was starting out, there was a guy who wrote for Spin. Uh, he wrote, I mean, he wrote a lot of things for them, but he had their um, their singles column in the in the review section every week, every month. Uh, and his name is Charles Aaron, and he wrote about rap and R&B and house music with the same kind of like level of interest that he, that, you know, he wrote about alternative rock, which is basically what spin was about. And I loved that dude's voice. I thought he was really funny and was also had like a great ear for things. Um, he's one of my favorites, uh, Jessica Hopper, who is a friend of mine now and who has written for a ton of different places. But when I was in high school, she was, a columnist for punk planet magazine. Oh yeah. I know punk planet. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was a big fan. Also, uh, maximum rock and roll had this guy named Rev Norb who wrote like really, really sort of these like passionate screeds that were hilarious and were like self aware and just seemed he seemed like he was just like bouncing off the walls with energy. There would be like lots and lots of like, like brackets within brackets and parentheses within parentheses. And he had this whole elaborate for like system for all his like long digressions. And a lot of the time the digressions would be the whole text of the column. Wow. I loved that. I loved that guy. The, those were, I would say those were my fa- my three favorites off the top of my head. And now God, there's so many good people doing it. I think um, very, I'm so happy to be part of the, the crew that I'm with at Stereo Gun. There's not very many of us, but I think everybody's good. John Karamanica at the Times, I'm, I'm you know really fond of his work and have been, since I was in high school, probably, really. He's been at it. He's not that much older than me, but he's been at it for way longer. I think Lindsay Zolads is awesome. Rob Harvilla, my friend, I think is great. There, there's a ton. There's so many. I, I'm going to forget people as I name people, and that's the worst. Well, you mentioned awesome. you mentioned Steve Hyden, and I read his book, and he he's like he was equally as obsessed with like the 1995 VMAs as I was. Where 95, 95 no was nine, no 92 maybe it was the one where Howard Stern did uh, Fart Man. Fart Man 92, yeah, yeah, it was 92, and like the Black Crows came out and played um, that one song that's totally unkillable that they uh, that they do Remedy, but like apparently a lot happened. Uh, during that, and I remember I had videotaped that one, like off TV, and I'd watched it over and over again. I was like eleven yeah. years old. I actually, I did. I was twelve. As like right around my twelfth birthday, and I didn't have cable as a kid, but somebody had taped that one for me, so I nice. watched that one a lot of times too. Where's <laughs> Axel? Hi, Axel. <laughs> yeah, uh, Axel tells Kurt Cobain, "Hey, tell that bitch to shut up." And he turns to Courtney Love and just goes, "Hey, bitch, shut up!" Like. <laughs> <laughs> they almost get in a fight, and you go. Yeah, yeah. there's the whole thing. God, like it's too weird. I wrote music reviews and concert reviews for a brief time on this site called Four One One Mania, and then realized I wasn't real good at it, and so I kind of gave it up. Which I think is like a hard lesson because I wrote my entire master's thesis about punk rock um, oh, wow. up at Colorado State, and so I took two bands that were really popular. So this was like 2006, and I wrote about Yellow Card and Rise Against. Okay. And like they'll they'll end up on the same kind of radio station but like much different kind of punk sounds coming out of each of them. Yeah. And so like different I trajectories too. Yeah, totally. Uh I wrote about that and I realized at the time I've I've reread it since I've well, like opened it up and thumbed through it and I'll go 
okay, you're doing a really, really painful Chuck Klosterman impression. Right, okay. And so, like, that was my guy. The, when I read Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, I go, this is, this is what I want to sound like. But sounding like Chuck Klosterman is an absolute fool's errand. He, he has a very particular voice. I think a lot of people try to write like Chuck. Yeah. Um, uh, that's uh it's yeah i don't know that i have anybody who i try to write like that's I think good that's, that's, i think the way my the uh, i try to make my stuff kind of conversational I, I, and that makes it easy for me especially in like an online era when i don't have time to be like laboring over sentence structure and whatever right how, how much are you edited in that av club column because that feels like a pure distillation of basically if I know and I know you've seen the movie Fight Club, you know, he creates Tyler Durden as this sort of avatar for himself. And he's like, I look like you want to look. I fuck like you want to fuck. You write like I wish I wrote. Oh, thanks, man. That's so nice. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and, and there was a sentence that hooked me and it was in your review of Total Recall, which was, you know, you said there's an old lady who swears at Schwarzenegger. There's the prostitute with the three boobs. Basically, if you were 11 years old when this movie came out, it's an absolute garden of delights. <laughs> and I go, he captured exactly like what I love about this movie because it's so supremely weird and it's so funny and so violent and just it it's deeply unsettling in so many ways. But it, it was like the perfect movie for 10 year old me and I probably shouldn't have been watching it. Right. No, that's definitely not an okay movie for a 10 year old. <laughs> I don't I don't I, I, I was probably like 13 or 14 when I finally saw it. I didn't see it when it first came out, but I remember the lady with the three boobs being like a heavy topic of conversation, like long before I saw it, just like, like there's a lady in that movie, has three boobs. And it's one of those things. It's like, I, okay. When I was in second grade, there was a kid who watched the movie, the thing, like the John Carpenter thing. Oh yeah. With like Kurt Russell. Yeah. Yeah. And like, just like, just at lunch one day, like told me everything that happened in that movie. And I was like, that can't be real. And then for years I was like, this kid just made up this movie. He was just being so weird. Like he must've been tripping off of something right. like a chest opens up and eats a guy's arms. And then like, <laughs> I, I saw the movie like many years later and I was like, Oh, that kid was telling the truth the whole time. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> Like the, the, you know, the WeeBay gift, like. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> it's like that scene in Parks and Recreation when Chris Pratt is relating Roadhouse to that crowd of donors. And he's like, and he's got him right here. And he, he he's like, not this time, bro. And he, he rips his throat. And it's like, <laughs> and he's like describing it for all these rich people. And I go, dude, that, that's like describing a movie when you're 10 years old. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. So, how much? Getting back to my original question before I decided to, uh, you know, fanboy all over you. Uh, how how much of that is edited? How much of that is you know as you conceive it? What what's the editing process like for a column like that? Well, Alex is he, every once in a while he'll send me a column back and be like, I you know I think you went off on too many tangents here. I don't think you quite like got what you were going for. And, you know, I'll do a little extra work on it. But, you know, those guys are so busy. Like, online editors in general, like, if 
you don't send clean copy to them, you're not going to get to keep working because they don't have time to keep going over stuff with you for a long time, with some exceptions. But yeah, I mean, I don't get edited too stringently over there. And he pretty much lets me talk my shit, which I love. Like it's when, whenever I do get to work with like a real, like, like Sean fantasy at the ringer is like a, like a will really work on stuff with you. And that's awesome. And I love having that, like that, uh, focus put on it and to have to like do some extra work. But in the moment when you're trying to like do it, it sucks. Like trying to like (laughs) rewrite stuff. I'm so not used to it. I have so many bad internet habits from just having written on the internet and like almost never for print over like the last like 15 years that, uh, that, having to like work on stuff more is a real pain in the ass. So I almost like, like it's stereo gum. If I have a longer column, I'll get somebody else to read over it and like fix some typos. But for the most part, like I don't get edited very much there. I I wouldn't say Alex edits my stuff too much at the AV club either. How long does a column like that take? Because if anyone who's reading this or who's listening to this hasn't read it, like it's it's a long read, and like you weave in cultural themes. You'll you'll cite reviews of other reviewers sometimes, or you'll talk about movies that are kind of related similarly in the canon. There, there's a lot that goes into it, and it paints a really interesting picture. Not only, particularly with this popcorn champs column series that you're doing, not only of the movie, but of the culture that kind of informs the movie and why it became number one. So how yeah, I love the- thinking about that stuff. It's it's a lot like I usually do those those columns in a night, like in maybe like three four hours. I'll just sit down at the computer, try to bang it out, and then you know get to sleep before midnight if I can. Right. But I think about them a lot before I actually sit down to write them, and I like I tr- you know I've been rewatching a lot of movies for it, or like watching a lot of these big, big like I never saw like an officer and a gentleman before a couple weeks ago. Oh, really. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, everybody's got those movies that they've seen, like, bits and pieces of, but never sat and watched the whole thing. Um, It's been a good excuse to do a bunch of those. Officer and Gentleman, pretty good movie. If somebody had told me that there was, like, a climactic kung fu fight in The Officer and Gentleman, (laughs) I probably would have watched it, like, a long time before. Uh, It's not, like, a good kung fu fight, but I was, like, it was just, like, oh, there's a there's a Kung Fu fight in here. Like it was such a, like yeah. it was such an unexpected little treat. Like, Oh no, now they're going to come through. All right, cool. I, I love when there's weird shit like that too. One of the reasons I, my parents loved an officer and a gentleman. So it was on a lot in our house. One of the things I liked about it was as a big fan of American gladiators, anything, mm-hmm. any movie that uses an obstacle course as like a plot <laughs> point, I'm going to be kind of on board with my, my inner child is going to go. Yeah. All right. No, we'll sit down and watch this. There should be an American Gladiators movie. I agree. Like, that should be like a sports movie or something, and not like a like a Will Ferrell jokey sports movie, but like I mean, it's American Ninja Warrior, basically, right? American Ninja Warriors, like the more like the less ridiculous American Gladiators. Like there should be a Ninja Warrior sports movie. Yeah, it. Well, that's kind of Rollerball too, isn't it? Well, I mean, Rollerball is something else. That's like. The dystopian American gladiators, right? <laughs> no, that's fair. That's like the the perfect opposite. And that first Rollerball movie is awesome. The remake with Chris Klein, just the drizzling shits. I've never seen the remake. I haven't seen the original since I was a kid. And I remember being, like, really bored. 
Like it just it like the the actual rollerball scenes were really cool and they looked like the poster, but then everything like I just remember a lot of like James Conn standing in rooms and I was done with that. Well, the, I couldn't, couldn't hold me. Well, that's kind of the movies of the seventies, you know. Yeah, yeah. A lot of James Conn <laughs> standing in rooms in the seventies. Well, the other like, what's, the, what's the one the Sam Peckinpah movie where he fights ninjas? Oh God, um... the Killer Elite. Yeah, lot, not enough ninja stuff happening in the Killer Elite, and the ninjas are like way too easy to beat. <laughs> uh, it, it it reminds me the other day. So we're in quarantine, and I got these young kids, and we're on Disney Plus all the time. Yep. And, and so I go, I got to get a deeper cut here. So there was a movie I really liked growing up called The Cat from Outer Space. I've never seen that. Uh, it's basically it's like it sounds. Okay, so okay. there's yeah, yeah, it gives you it gives you what you need from that title. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the movie Hotel for Dogs, right? It's a mm-hmm. movie. It's got uh, a hotel and some dogs. In this yeah, one, I just wrote a column about three men and a baby, and <laughs> my daughter wanted to watch it with me. She was like, "What's it about?" I was like, "Well, it's it's <laughs> I mean, there's three men." They got a baby. Yeah. Uh, number that one was, movie in America. In nineteen eighty seven. Big movie year. That was the number very that was a weird column to write. I cannot wait for it. Like you you teed it up in your last one and I go, Oh man, okay, I'm gonna be itching for this one because <laughs> Good, <I'm laughs> uh but the cat from outer space. So this cat crash lands his spaceship. Um, there's a race, an alien race of cats that use thought transference with this magical collar that they have. And as I'm describing this, I already feel high. So I'm like, check it out, Grace. You know, we, we have two cats. You know, this is a talking cat, sort of. These lips don't move. It's all just voiceover. And the first 20 minutes are just nothing but like army guys talking and trying to figure <laughs> out this spaceship. And then before we even get to the cat, they end up in this lab with all these scientists and so, like, uh, who's that? Who's the guy from MASH? Uh, McC- no, no, not Alan Alda. McLean Stevenson and Harry Morgan. Like, they're both in it. And Sandy Duncan's in it. It's this collection of 70s, like, sitcom all-stars. And she's like, are they ever going to get back to the cat? <laughs> and I go, this is how movies used to be. You have to sit through a lot of weird and boring adult exposition before, to quote The Simpsons, we get to the fireworks factory. Yeah, yeah, it's like the old Godzilla movies. Like, there's so much oh, like totally scientists in white coats talking to each other. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and you go, okay, like, is this movie is Godzilla actually in this movie, or mm-hmm. is is this like a podcast about Godzilla? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this like before I was getting ready to interview you. By the way, I read your interview with Violent J, and that was fantastic. I saw someone in your Twitter replies encouraged you to read. Um, you don't know me, but you don't like me. By Nathan Rabin? Yeah, no, I haven't read that. I just that read... That Violent J interview, that was my first Zoom call, and this is my second one. Oh, get out. So you're, you're in good company. I should have painted up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that was... that was He's a phenomenal storyteller, and... What a great... There's so... Like, he gave me two and a half hours, that dude did. Jeez. And, like, there was so much that I couldn't even put in, because it was already getting so long. But man, that guy told some stories. He's just a super fun hang. Yeah, and he seems like a genuinely really good and kind of caring guy. That is a hundred percent the impression that I got. That's also everything I've ever heard of him about him. Um, one of my old coworkers at the Village Voice was Camille Dodero, who's written a lot about 
him and like spoke at the Juggalo March on Washington and goes to the gathering of the Juggalos every year. And everything she's ever said about him made him seem like a great dude. And that has definitely been my experience. God, that's awesome. Like that's always so cool. And I mean, Mm -hmm. granted I've in my life poked my fair share of fun at insane clown posse, but I mean, they're an easy target. They are, they are. And it's like, the more you think about them, the more obvious it becomes that they're an easy target and it makes you feel shittier. Yeah. Cause I've made fun of them too. It makes you feel shittier for every time you ever make fun of them because they like, they have a fan base that is like, at least as far as like white America goes, like as you know, they got it. The people who are drawn to insane clan posse generally do not have easy lives. Generally. And no. They, yeah. And so like they, they're, doing like a real service for a lot of people, like by being out there and, and giving this outlet and providing this sense of community. I see the same thing in hardcore, honestly. Yeah. Like a lot of the people who are drawn to hardcore music are not like it. it you know, it, a lot of it is people who have like difficulties in life and it, it's a beautiful thing to see it all come together. Yeah. And it's like channeled into something. Well, I mean, these people have found like just this sort of, it, it admittedly aesthetically quite odd form of expression, but it they're they're very earnest in their love for it. Which, oh yeah, in, in you know growing up in the '90s and the 2000s when we were so steeped in snark, yes, um, and you know ironic distance. And now I think we're sort of past that. And it's like if you find people genuinely having a good time and like unafraid to kind of cut loose and look weird and be crazy there's almost a level of envy associated with it where you go, man, I kind of wish like I could find something like that, that, that I feel as passionately about. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Anyway, I was thinking about this as I was getting ready to interview you and there was this meme on Facebook a while back. And it's like, if you picked three pop culture characters that represent kind of your personality, who would you pick for me? Turn this question a little bit and I'll give you my example here because I know I'm putting you on the spot and I've had more time to think about this. But if there were like, and it doesn't have to be three, but a certain number of pop culture texts or artifacts or artists that kind of represent your sensibility as a critic, as a pop culture fan, what would they be? And I'll tell you mine. Mine are Chris Jericho, the Mighty Mighty Boston's, <laughs> and the show Parks and Rec. Okay. That that kind of summarizes my sensibility and my tastes and like where I go and like who I kind of aspire to be and... You know, I think about the Boston's because when I heard them in high school, I, it changed my entire musical taste and it sent me off on this path. And they were the catalyst. And like the cool thing about the Boston's is they're still kind of metal too, which is awesome. They are, yeah. They got that like fishbone thing where yeah. it's like, uh, it, it's uh, we're gonna like make sure this is still noisy and that you know we come from like some version of punk. Yeah, it's it's not. Like, we'll incorporate some two-tone, and we'll be poppy, and, you know, we have pop sensibility. We're in the movie Clueless, but we'll still melt your face. I saw them a lot of times in high school. Like, a lot of times. <laughs> they, I probably, for a while, I think the Bostons were, like, the band I had seen live the most times of, like, any band that, like, wasn't, like, specifically Baltimore. Yeah, mine, mine is probably the Mad Caddies. I remember them. Yeah, off of Fat Records. Yep. Yeah, I interviewed their lead singer uh, two years ago. Great guy. Uh, smoked two joints while I talked to him, so that was something. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, musicians. Have you ever like 
I, I've been in situations where I've smoked weed with musicians during interviews, and that's a bad idea. So you don't want to do that. It's you can't hang. You know, behind a desk for a living, you can't hang. You can't get in there. It, it's it, you will be so catatonic, and they'll make fun of you. It's so it, 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 don't do that. No, it's like it's like um, taking a. Uh, like a point fighting karate class at the YMCA and then stepping in with a UFC fighter. Yep. Yep. It is that. So, okay. What about you? Now that I've given you just a little bit of time, if, if you, oh, if you have some things and I, I liked your response to uh, describe your favorite movie in three words. <laughs> and for those not following you on Twitter, it's robot is cop, <laughs> Yep. which I know, uh, I know my friends will appreciate cause they all love that movie. That's a great movie. The thing about identify, like, I don't know that I would want to pick cultural artifacts to identify myself with because that's, I feel like that becomes limiting at a certain point. Oh, 100%. And believe me, I've rethought my answers now since I've said them to you three minutes ago, roughly a hundred times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of are like, oh, that's who I am. And then you start thinking like, how much do I like that thing? I can, <laughs> I'll try to, I'll try to name some that were formative to me. Yeah. And yeah. Like to me. Um, one would be rancid, probably my favorite band, a very, like a real important, like jumping off point for me. Another would probably be like no limit records, music videos in the late nineties. Nice. Wow. Um, what a good, gr- what a fabulous answer. I'm trying to think of a good, a good, another one. The one that jumps most immediately to mind, and I don't know if it holds up at all, is the movie The Monster Squad. Oh, totally. Wolfman as Nards. Exactly. Um, that was a big... I don't know how much that necessarily informed my sensibilities, but it's definitely like a thing I thought about all the time as a kid. Just like constantly thought about. Like not even like watched over and over again or anything, but just like, okay... So there's monsters, and some of them are good, and some of them are evil. So you got to make alliances with some monsters to fight the other monsters. But all the monsters exist in the same reality. It was just, it was like I don't it was like a just something that I was like stuck on. Like I just it wasn't <laughs> like I didn't talk about it all the time or anything. It was just like wow, what would that be like? <laughs> just looped in your head a little bit. Yep, it yeah, did. That's funny, man. So I've told this story on the show before, but for a brief time, I was reviewing HBO for uh, this thing called examiner.com that no longer exists. And I grew to kind of dread it because I took this thing that I liked watching TV shows on HBO and turned Mm -hmm. it into a job. And one thing that I think is underestimated when it comes to writing about pop culture, particularly movies and music is it's pretty time consuming and pretty time intensive. Yep. And you know, thinking about even just these these popcorn champ movies that you're doing, you're not what just watching that movie, but you're doing research, you're, you know, seeing other movies that came out the same year. Do you ever get burned out on this and how do you fight that when you're like I and and what do you do for downtime because these are the things that people do to have fun. It's yeah. your entire job. Yeah, no, it's, it, there's not really downtime in the same. There's, you know, I'll like take a hike with my kids. Maybe there's a lot of like time budgeting. Like it's a real like it's like all right, I gotta watch this tonight, and if I don't watch it tonight, then my whole schedule is gonna be fucked. 
<laughs> so I gotta just do that. Uh, it's, a uh, as for burnout, you know, that's a real thing. And the, but also I'm so lucky to do what I do. You know, there's so few people who get to do it. Oh yeah. And the fact that I get to sort of direct it in the ways that I want and to sort of push it in. I started writing a hardcore column this year at the beginning of the year. Cause I started like paying more attention to it and being like, I live an hour away from Richmond. They have so many shows there that I never go to. But if I write about it, then I'll have an excuse to start forcing myself to go to these shows. And, uh, and now I can't go to the shows because they're not happening, but like, (laughs) but it's, you know, I, if I get into something, I try to find a way to get paid to be into it or to like, uh, to, you know, get some kind of work out of it to like attach it to this thing that I do. I guess that's probably the the way that I fight burnout the most is make sure I'm interested in something. Cause if I get sick of it, then it's like, it becomes such a drag. Right. I know what ultimately did me in for HBO was game of Thrones. Okay. Were you reviewing like every HBO show? Kind of. And <clears throat> I didn't, there wasn't much hierarchy there. You just sort of submitted columns on your own. Okay. And then based on, this formula that they never told you about, you would get paid a certain amount. Oh, it, that sounds rough. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was uh, a meat grinder, right? You know, like you just hire people. And if you referred other writers, you'd get like 500 bucks or whatever, um, or 200. I can't even remember what it was. But then you'd start grinding. I think I made over the three months that I did that, I think I made a grand total of like 200 bucks. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I'm reviewing like Eastbound and Down and Bored to Death. And I was even doing like documentaries and stuff. So like there was no real direction. It was just kind of at my discretion. Right. But then like Game of Thrones starts and I find out there's like all these books that are like thousands of pages and there's all this intricate backstory. And I go, I am never going to write about this correctly or properly, like Mm -hmm. with the, the attention to detail that it deserves. So I did the first one and then I was like out of town for the second one. And I go, okay, you know what? I think I've just done. And I felt so good. Like, Oh yeah. This quitting a TV show that's not working for you is like one of the great pleasures in the world. <laughs> it was like, like if when I made it like seven weeks in and I was like, Oh, Westworld sucks. I can just <laughs> stop. I can just it's, walk away. Like, yeah. Yeah, I remember when I finally did that with The Walking Dead, and I felt so happy mm-hmm. because you know people would be posting about it, and it was almost always like their annoyance with the show. And I go, yep. I don't have to drag this thing around with me anymore. I just yeah. walk away. Yeah, this stuff shouldn't become homework, even if it's your job. You got to do whatever you can to make it not be homework, dude. You're that's really well stated, and I use the same exact example, like. It, there's so much prestige TV out there and like so much pop culture that I could spend every free moment I had between now and my death catching up on all of it. It wouldn't be fun. No, like it, it just becomes this soulless slog at some point. I've got a friend who just wants me to watch Lost. And I go, dude, Lost is an hour and has more than 100 episodes. What the hell is wrong with you? I'm never going to yeah. do that. Like, why would I get into that now? Are you out of your yeah, mind? Yeah. Yeah, no, if you don't get into something like that in the moment, forget about it. <laughs> it's not that's not what you need to do with your life. Yeah, absolutely. So I would be remiss. I'm wearing my Orange Cassidy shirt. Hang on. I see it. I cannot tell you the level of glee I had when I found out you also liked pro wrestling. 
where I'm always interested in this. Where and how did you get into it? Wrestling. All right. I was, um, I, my freshman year of college was 1998. It was also the first time I had cable. And oh, nice. I had friends who were watching the Monday Night Wars. And, and, uh, and I was like, and so when me and my roommate got cable, I was like, I want to start watching wrestling. And there was a dude, you actually probably know who he is, uh, cause you follow baseball. Um, Jeff Passan. Yeah. Yeah. I know Jeff Passan wrote for Yahoo for a while. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jeff lived in the, in the room next door to mine and was real big on wrestling and knew everything about it. So he like filled me in on all the storylines and he was like, no, 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 don't watch Nitro's watch, watch raw more. It's better now. And like, just was like way up on everything. He took me to my first wrestling show in Syracuse at the, the nice. Onondaga war Memorial. How show TV taping. Do you remember? How show, how show it nice. was the, the main event was, uh, it was, a uh, it was a, not a triple threat. What do you call it with four fatal four way? Yeah. And it was stone cold and the rock and mankind and big boss man. Good Lord. So, yeah. No, you, you know, who's going to lose that one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, who's eating the pin on that one. Yep, that's yep. Uh, that's gotta be fall of 98 or early 99. I, it must've been fall of 98, but yeah, <laughs> Jeff pretty much like coached me into it and was like, here, there's these websites too and stuff. And was like, like here, like now I'll have somebody I can talk to about this was <laughs> probably what he was thinking. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's what got me in. And then I've been kind of in and out. Oh, sure. I was, I was out like pretty much from like when I met my wife until like, I want to say like I was living in Chicago. I was working at Pitchfork in like 2010, 2011. And I think he was talking to Damien Abraham from the band fucked up. Mm-hmm. Who's a friend. I was like interviewing him and we became friends and he was talking about wrestling all the time. And I was like, wait, like I live in Chicago. Like there's a lot of wrestling here. I could just go to wrestling shows. And so I went to like a couple like ring of honor, Chikara type things. Nice. And, um, and like I started listening to Cole Cabana's podcast and I wrote, uh, and then I interviewed him and I wrote like a story about him for the Chicago reader and it just, it was like, it's just one of those things where like a whole world becomes available to you again. And I've been, I've been slacking on wrestling lately. I haven't watched very much. Um, Dude, this, last... em- you're, you're not missing much. This empty arena shit is. Yeah, just... it's too depressing. I can't, I want to watch more AEW, but I'm like running out of time because I'm watching all this other shit. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, the, the WWE stuff is a, just a soul killer. Like it's crushing to me. I'm just not invested at all. And like everything that the company is doing now seems bad. Like every time I hear about some other thing they did, I was like, Oh, I bet it sucks. And then it does. <laughs> yeah. Like their deal with Saudi Arabia and oh, God. yeah, that sucks. The like <sighs> getting yourself declared an essential service sucks. Yeah. Like, and firing all these people on the XFL, just everything sucks. It's just, I watched, I, I had, let my WWE network subscription lapse. And then my son wanted to watch WrestleMania. So I fired it up again mm-hmm. and I tried to cancel it again and it won't let me cancel. Like the cancel button is non-functional. So I got to like call the helpline or whatever, which I haven't done yet. I hate that I'm giving them money. It, it's like an, yeah. like a, an existential like weight on my soul that, that I am supporting that company in any way right now. Yeah. It's, um, 
I went through that too. I I said I was never going to spend another dime with them after the Chris Benoit thing. Mm. And mm. Uh, no, I got sucked back in. It was Summer of Punk. So CM Punk. Summer of Punk sucked me back in pretty hard. I, I interviewed Punk right in between his big promo and Money in the Bank. Wow, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed him for GQ. That was maybe the first thing I wrote for GQ, and that turned out beautiful. I was so happy with that, and like it got read a lot in that, at that time, which was really nice. That's, I mean, that's you couldn't have picked a better time. Oh, to be yeah, with CM Punk it worked out great. What and is I did it through Colt because they were still friends then. I didn't have <laughs> yeah. to like, um, yeah, yeah, but I didn't have to, um, you know, go through WWE's like PR team, which is terrible people. I mean, they're probably nice, fine people in real life, but yeah. I've never had an easy time dealing with them. Um, <laughs> well, PR people are trained to say no to everything. And, no, no, they're not. not. PR people are trying to get you to write about their shit constantly, and at least in music. Not, I get hundreds of emails a day. You know what? That's a great point. I've worked in industries where my job is to shut down all media requests. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I like I've worked in natural resources. I've been on the record spokesman for a large company that didn't want to do press ever. Right. Okay. And so my suspicion is WWE doesn't like anything they don't control. Yes. And so like that's true of a very specific type of breed of company. And so when you described it to me, I go, I know exactly what types of PR people these are because I have been that person. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm not used to that at all. Like music music PR people are great. They're like, I had this weird, like before I took my first like music writing job, I was like, Oh man, there's people going to be, they're going to be trying to sell me stuff and they're going to be like trying to manipulate me and shit. It's going to suck. And like, they're all like people who are into music and like wanted to work around it and, and are like a lot of them used to be in bands or are still in bands and, or, or, or musicians and they're, or have been music writers and they're just, I, I, most of them are like really good people from what I've, you know, from what I've known. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's important as a PR person, especially if you're, if you're pitching a reporter that has an audience or, you know, a journalist that has an audience, you got to come correct with your pitch and you got to come like fast and get to the point really quickly because, uh, the alt weekly here in Denver is called Westward. And I wanted to interview one of their reporters and I asked him, I'm like, how many emails in your inbox right now? He goes, unread, I think 24,000. He's like, I just, I can't keep up with deleting them all. And I'm like, wow, I, I'm amazed I got through. He goes, well, you pitched me correctly. And I, (laughs) and so like that matters. What are some of the things Jason Heller, who I mentioned earlier on this show, used to do bad press release theater. What are some things that you wish you would never have to see in a press release ever again? Oh, I don't know. The press release, like, when I, when I started at the Village Voice, my boss had a giant filing cabinet full of press releases by band. And so I would do, when I wanted to write about something or, like, get into a show or whatever, I would go sift through the filing cabinet and pull out if they had, like, an 8 by 10 on whatever band or whatever it was. And I would email whoever was the contact on that press release and hope that they were still, that the email a- a- address was still active and that they could help me out. And, and that's what it, that's like what it was. That was how I got stuff done. And so now 
my email inbox is that. So I don't, you know, people email me stuff and I don't read it ever. Like I just, uh, I'll scan the titles maybe. And, uh, but when I know that I want to write about something, because I'm not discovering things through bubble systems, that's not kind of my modus operandi at all. You know, I find if I think of something that I want to write about, I'll just search my inbox for it. And sometimes I'll have a contact and sometimes I won't. It's funny to me because clients, when you're writing press releases for them, will agonize over them. And, right, yeah. And, and will like, you know, niggle with you over word choices and this really inconsequential stuff like formatting things. I'm going, guys, no one is reading these things when I send them out. Okay. I have to get it in their inbox and it has to be there so that when I call them, because I found as a PR guy, the biggest, like, the, the biggest tool that I have that is underutilized in the way I get shit done is actually via phone. Mm-hmm. Because like people, you'll see memes all the time about people who like hate talking on the phone. Right. Reporters generally pick up the phone, and I know I have about thirty seconds before they're going to start tuning me out. So I gotta like my phone pitch is actually much more important than the press release. The press release yeah, yeah. is just like a rote recitation of the stuff that you need to know, just so you can look at it when I call you. Yeah, no, I hope that stuff is in a press release when I pull it up. And like, I, if it's about a band that I'm curious about, they'll tell me where they're from and how long they've been together and like what the singer's name is. I don't care about the bassist name in most cases. <laughs> um, and, uh, and maybe like who produced the record or whatever. I don't need like purple flowery language describing what the music does. Like I can do that fine on my own. <laughs> right. Yeah. Tell me what style they are. Tell me. If you, if that, if that, a lot of times bands don't like to be pulled. Pin, oh pin yeah. Down. Good point. Right. Fine. Like I'll pin them down on my own. I'll come up with some bullshit genre designation <laughs> that doesn't exist. It's what I'm paid to do. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's actually fair. I, uh, I obviously haven't pitched this type of thing in a long time. I'm, I'm always pitching my own show. So, you know, I try and have key things. Like when I DM'd you on Twitter, like mm-hmm. here's three DMs. Here's my show. Here's the number of episodes I've had. Here's some notable guests. Would you like to be? I'm a big fan of yours. Would you like to be on? It was as simple as that. Yeah, no, that was good. Yeah. So that's that's always reassuring when uh, you know when when you actually close the deal. Oh my God, is that a kitty? Yep. What? Uh, Rocky. Rocky. My cats. While I was producing podcasts professionally today, just decided to show up, and so walking right in front. One of them's got the beatus, <laughs> and so I give him insulin shots twice a day. Okay. Um, how old is Rocky? Oh, I, I think he's three or four. Nice. All right. My cats are old. My kids are young. My cats are old. Okay. So coming up, you've got, uh, I think, when does the Three Men and a Baby one uh, go live in the AV Club? Is that? Uh, I think that's a Friday after next. Okay. So. I think I actually got that one done a little early. Nice. Well done. So that'll be two days after this goes live. Um, now's the time on the show when we do plugs. Where can people find you? Where can they find your work? Anything you want to plug? Do it now. Oh, sir. I'm on Twitter at Tom Bryan. That's B R E I H A N. Uh, I, I, you know, I write for Stereogum. I have stuff up there all the time. Uh, I've got a bunch of columns over there. The one that I spend the most time on is called The Number Ones, where I'm reviewing every number one single uh, that was from the Billboard Hot 100 in that chart's history. So 1958 to the present, and I'm up to 82 now. I think I started at 82. 
And so that's, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of my time on that. Uh, I can I re- imagine how long that, and we didn't even talk about that one, but no, that I dig that one. And you just did the one that was, uh, the week I was born. Which, oh yeah. Which one was that? Endless love. <laughs> I, that was number one for a long time. That was, yeah. I got, I got my Sharona. So I'm, I'm a tiny bit older than you and I got pretty lucky with that one. I, I can't be mad at that one. Yeah. Um, I looked it up for my daughters and my oldest daughter, hers is like all about that bass by Megan Trainer. Okay. And the other one is a song and an artist I didn't recognize, which makes me feel like I'm getting older. So it was 2016 and I cannot remember the artist or the name, but anyway. Okay. My, my daughter is, I got a feeling by the black eyed peas. First, and... first song on the dance floor at my wedding. Okay, all right. So that that yeah, had to be I, what two thousand. Really like that song. Uh, all <laughs> that, not to spoil the poem whenever I get to it. But um, and my son is uh somebody that I used to know by Gautier. Ah yes, Gautier. Yeah, no, that's a good song. Um, first time I saw that written out, I thought of Goatsy, which if you were on the internet at a certain time, you know what that is. Um, are you familiar with that? I think so. Okay, well, let's talk about it off mic because it's disgusting. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, so yeah, the number one's another great column. I mean, you're you're chronicling, you're you're basically chronicling pop culture since. I mean, you said 1958 for the number ones, and the popcorn champ started what 1960. 1960. Yeah. Yeah. So the last 60 years of pop culture is going to come under your purview here. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. uh, My dad is a history professor, and I would get so bored with all the stuff he would show me as a kid. Like, he, like he, so this has gone way off of plugs. But um, (laughs) so when when my dad retired a few years ago, they had this retirement party for him at the history department of the college where he works in Baltimore, and one of his colleagues was speaking and was like joking about how he would stop on car trips and read every historical marker, like all the information on it. And that was like a real, like, Oh, they don't all do that. That's just (laughs) him. Like he's the weird one of that group. But like now I'm doing the same type of shit with like my own little niche interests, like the getting into the history of it and all the like granular nerdy shit about it. And I really like it. It turns out. So, yes, uh, I've definitely been getting into just, like, the ways that culture interacts with, like, the world around it. Like, what is it about, like, I like Celebration by Cool and the Gang was number one because, I mean, not just because of that, but one of the main reasons was the freeing of the, like, Iranian hostages. Right. The, like a lot of news broadcasts were using that to like mark the occasion of them coming home. And then two weeks later, celebrations, the number one song in America. I thought that was fascinating. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. (laughs) So Um, like that, and just getting to like, you get, you know, like you see all these stories develop and branch off and go in different directions. It's been a lot of fun. It's awesome, man. And it's a joy to read. Like I said, you write like I wish I wrote, and so it's an absolute pleasure that you're putting these things out. And the fact that I discovered them was one of the history of violences about the Warriors. 
Yes. Okay, because for whatever reason, like a couple of times a year, I'll just go online and see if anyone else has written about the Warriors. Just, <laughs> just because I like that movie so much, and it's so good, the whole world that it showed, that it like outlines, and but it did doesn't fill in all the details. You got to be like the Skinhead Gang. What's their deal? And totally. like, I love it. I I do too. Um, there, there's just a lot there, and Rockstar Games did an amazing Warriors video game. In like... Yes, I, I played it for a very long time. <laughs> okay, good. Well, we could probably do this for two more hours, but I'm going to let you go because I know it's getting later there, and I'm sure you have something to watch or write. Yeah, I probably do. But Tom Bryan, this was an absolute pleasure, and I uh, can't wait to see what you write next, and I wish you continued success. Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me on. This is a lot of fun. And that wraps up episode 253 of the John of All Trades podcast. Big thanks to Tom Bryan for being on the show, chatting with me about all sorts of pop culture. There were more than 40 or so references in there. Did you catch them all? I'll bet you didn't. Be sure to check him out at all the places he writes. You'll find that companion blog piece at johnofalltrades.us. Also in the show notes, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or a billion other podcatchers. Subscribe, rate, and review. Those things all help. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web. D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Training, content, engagement, podcasting. Those are the four pillars of what I do. Basically, if you work for an organization that needs to tell its story better, I can help you do that. Whether that's through creating an awesome podcast for your constituents to listen to and the people you want to touch, or if you want to create a training program for your employees so that they can talk about your business in a very effective way, I got it all. Just hit me up. D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. I'm also on social. J-O-A-T-Pod is the handle for Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. All great ways of staying up to date with the John of All Trades podcast. I am 99% positive I am going to be back here next week with a fresh show. Memorial Day kind of threw off my schedule. My pitching is all off. I got to get some irons in the fire. I got good ones coming. I do have one guest confirmed. We'll see if I get it done this week, but I will certainly keep you up to date. I hope you're staying safe, staying sane, staying healthy. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your life. Can't wait to hear you again, and until I do, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.